A warm welcome back to Kingdom 101. And as always, we want to welcome the listeners on our SoundCloud channel. Uh, we welcome you back and thank you for journeying with us. Although you're not here physically, we are encouraged that you're listening in. And so we pray that this will always be a blessing to everyone and anyone. And so this evening, let's begin, let's pray, and then let's read the scriptures before getting into our session tonight. Father, we thank you, Lord. What a privilege that we can gather in the name of Jesus. Lord, as we worship through the preaching of the word, we want Jesus to be glorified. We want your Holy Spirit to come upon everything that, has, that is shared. And I want to thank you, Lord, that hearts have been made ready by you, that we can receive and hear what you want to say to your church. And so be with me and be with everyone listening in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This teaching will be taken from Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 to 15. So let me read the text first, and then we will get into the teaching proper. Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 to 15. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This passage is from Matthew chapter 11, and it's right in the middle of this chapter. So it's important for us to review a little bit what we did in the last teaching, where we started in Matthew chapter 11. Now we know that this whole chapter is about these two characters, John the Baptist and Jesus. We found that John the Baptist and Jesus were both mentioned in that one chapter, Matthew chapter 3, where Matthew introduces John the Baptist, and later on, John himself points to Jesus, introduces Jesus. So Matthew starts with, or Matthew chapter 3 starts with John the Baptist, but interestingly, it ends with Jesus. Then we see in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, that when John was thrown into prison, Jesus begins his public Galilean ministry. And after that, he starts to preach the Sermon on the Mount. We find that in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Once he comes down from the mountains and gets into the multitudes, Matthew's chapter 8 and 9 would describe the demonstration of the kingdom. And then we come to chapter 10, where Jesus assembles, assigns team Jesus, sends them out, and gives them instructions as well as a warning to say, be careful as you get onto kingdom assignments. Not everything will go as smoothly as you want it to go, but you have to be wary of people and be prepared for an eventuality of opposition. And so when we come to Matthew chapter 11, we must read this chapter in the context of the previous chapters. If you take it by itself, I'm sure you can learn something from it, but you miss a much larger picture. Chapter 11 is, like I said last time, is like a description or an illustration of Jesus' warning in chapter 10. And so he tells the people, the disciples, you be careful, bad things may happen to you. And before you know it, we see John the Baptist on kingdom assignment, stuck in prison, and you know, not good things were happening to him. And so last time when we did chapter 11 verses 1 to 6 in the teaching, not as expected, 
we explored this little episode where John is in prison and he's starting to wonder, right? He's got questions. Uh, Jesus, are you the one? I mean, I proclaimed you, I pointed to you, but are you the one that is to come? So he sends his disciples and they go to Jesus and the disciples of John asked Jesus openly, It wasn't a private thing to say, excuse me, Jesus, can I have a few minutes with you? No, it was whilst Jesus was with the multitudes, there were other people around, that the disciples asked him openly. And so in that sense, you can almost imagine if you were there, listening in to this dialogue or questioning or this debate, they were questioning Jesus openly in asking, Jesus, are you the coming one? It was already displaying a doubt from where John was concerned. But at the same time, they questioned Jesus' identity as the Messiah in front of everyone. And so because it was raised openly, then Jesus had to address this point also openly. And so when John's disciples received the answer from Jesus... And we won't spend time on that. If you want, you must go and listen to last teaching, not as expected. After they receive the answer, they depart. So verse 7 starts with this. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes. So because he was asked openly, he was questioned openly, he had to also address this point openly to the multitudes. You're not even sure what they might be thinking about. What were they thinking of John? Uh, What were they thinking of Jesus? And so we see these two characters again coming into play, John and Jesus. Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John. Now, what was at stake? Why was it so important for him to address this in such a manner? Since John pointed to Jesus... Any loss of credibility in the person and ministry of John will also mean the loss of credibility in the person and ministry of Jesus. Can you see? It's so important. And Jesus was sharp. He knew exactly what was at stake. And so if John was being questioned and he was being questioned, he now addresses the multitudes. And so that in affirming John, Jesus will at the same time affirm himself, his own identity, as well as his own messiahship. So in this teaching, we will explore this significance of the relationship of John and Jesus one level deeper. And through this, we will discover what kingdom greatness is all about. I mean, that's why this teaching is called Kingdom Greatness. Uh, What has that got to do with this passage that we are exploring? And of course, importantly, how does that apply to all of us? So if you're ready, you know, Jesus talking to the multitudes and he begins by asking a question. What did you go out to see? What did you go out to see? Now, he begins to ask a whole series of these what we call rhetorical questions. And this is a rabbinic style in that instead of giving you a straight answer, Jesus loves to ask questions. John was now in prison, he had doubts, and his experience did not match up with his expectation. The people now may have questions in their minds. And so Jesus employs his rabbinic style, and he answers the questions by asking questions to provoke the answers. And so he asks this, what did you go out to see? Three times he repeats this question. The first thing is, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? So the first is he addresses John's work environment or his ministry environment. This was the wilderness. I mean, you don't find a person who is weak and in a comfort zone kind of person to be working in the wilderness. You would probably find him in a place that is much easier to handle. And this counters the moment he says, what did you go out to the wilderness to see? Are you looking for a reed shaken by the wind? You see, he is asking this question to provoke an answer. Obviously, no. You don't go out to the wilderness. Only strong things will survive in the climate and the environment of the wilderness. And so this counters the perception of weakness or of indecision. Contrary to this seeming thought that he is weak, John was a picture of strength and of sturdiness. He is not a reed that is blown about by the wind. 
And this reminds me of a verse that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, right? That we should no longer be children tossed about by every wind of doctrine. So similarly, if we want to move on a kingdom assignment like John, sure, there may be times where our experience may not line up with our expectations, we may have questions, we may have doubts, but may we not be like a reed that's blown about all over the place, where today we think it's this, tomorrow we think it's that, and we are running all about chasing seminars and chasing anointed people, and finally, we don't have a conviction of ourselves. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Surely, only those who are strong can withstand the harshness of such an environment. Next, Jesus then addresses John's dress sense or his dress code. What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? I mean, did you expect to see someone out there with nice silk flowing clothes and latest fashion sense? No. Matthew records John dressed in camel's hair. Now, that's very uncomfortable. I'm not saying I've worn camel's hair. But you've just worn some kind of a fabric that's, that's itchy, you know, that's rough. You know it's uncomfortable, right? Even in our weather, just putting on today's t-shirt, it can feel a little bit clammy, right? A little bit grimy because of the weather that we are in. What more in the wilderness? He was wearing camel's hair with leather belt around his waist and his, even his food sense was a little bit radical, right? He was eating locusts and wild honey. How do you like that for your diet? And today we're even talking about to fast, to abstain from certain things. We already feel it's so difficult. And he will be way too radical for many of us in the way we understand ministry and how we are to go about that. So Jesus goes straight for this question. Do you expect you know, out in the wilderness to find someone dressed in soft garments? Surely not. Because these are only found in king's houses or rich places. These are the people who wear these soft garments. And there's an interesting discovery here. The word soft is the Greek malakos. And the word malakos means soft to the touch and refers to clothing of a soft material and very, very fine texture. But figuratively, and this is the interesting discovery, figuratively, this word malakos also can mean effeminate. Paul uses this word malakos when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to be translated as homosexual. And the word malakos is linked with two other words, moikos and another one, asenokoites. And these two words are translated as adulterers and sodomites. So it's not a good word. There's a negative connotation that's attached to it. And so you find these in the king's houses or in the dwellings of the rich and famous. Now, it was dangerous for Jesus to make a comment like that. It was not politically correct. It's like, excuse me, Jesus, you better be careful. If you are referring to king's houses, guess who's the king at that time? King Herod. Now, where was John? In King Herod's prison. And so if you are comparing John who is in King Herod's prison as someone who is strong versus the softies who are found in the king's houses, you might just incur the wrath of King Herod and he might just come for you in a very, very short time. And yet Jesus was making a very, very, very strong point to say, look, you are not hoping to find someone soft in the wilderness. John is strong, he's sturdy, he's convicted, he knows exactly what it all is about. And just in case you still don't get it, he asks it for the third time. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Did you go out to see a prophet? Well, yes. You went out to see a prophet, you got a prophet. But let me say something to you. He's more than any other prophet than you ever knew. He's more than just a prophet of all that you are accustomed to. John had a very, very special place. And so Jesus, in wanting to affirm the person, the message, and the ministry of John, states very clearly to all the people, let me explain to you how special John is. And let me affirm it for you in the next few verses. And so from verse 10 all the way through to verse 14, and of course it ends in verse 15, Jesus talks about John. 
and he employs a very interesting structure to explain this and to also let the people discover some of the main points that he actually wants to say. Now, if you study the Bible, you will learn this thing called the chiastic structure. It's called an inverted parallelism, meaning to say the way the writers would structure the writings or the way the teachers would teach it is that they will sandwich the verses from outside to the inside. So let me describe this to you. For example, we are looking at the five verses from verse 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. The teacher would then use verse 10 and 14, the two outside verses, to make the same point. Then he will introduce the next point in verse 11 and 13, sandwiching, finally, the middle verse, verse 12, that contains the main thing that he wants to say. So if you're a student or a disciple of a rabbi, you will know how to discern some of these things. Now for us, in our language today, we, we hardly use something like that. So this is a very interesting discovery. It is a literary style to introduce and bring out the main point. Now what is it? So let me explain this to you. In verses 10 and 14, you notice Jesus talks about John the Baptist as Elijah. In verse 10, it says, This is of whom it is written. This is Elijah. Then in verse 14, he says it again, If you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Same point. But this forms the outer bracket. Then in 11 and 13, Jesus positions John the Baptist as the culmination of, of the Old Testament. So he talks about among all the prophets before in the Old Testament, no one is greater than John the Baptist. In other words, it comes to John and it ends there. And he's supposed to be like the greatest. And in verse 13, notice it says, For all the prophets and the law prophesy until John. Every time when you see this phrase, the prophets and the law, or the law and the prophets, it just refers to the entire Hebrew scriptures. It's a collective term for the scriptures of that day. And then finally, in verse 12, he talks about the kingdom of God. So what's the main point? The kingdom of God. What about the kingdom of God? Hang in there. We'll get to that. But let's unpack and let's look at the outer brackets first. Because if you don't understand the outer brackets, then you will miss the main point that Jesus is trying to say. So keep this in mind. Don't miss the main point. Don't miss later on the implications of the main point. So let's start by exploring verses 10 and 14, the outer bracket that talks about John the Baptist as Elijah. Jesus declares, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Now this, we are very familiar today. We know that this one verse is taken from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. To the Jews, Malachi would be very, very familiar. And he is seen and regarded as the last of the Old Testament prophets. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 speaks of a messenger who will usher in the day of the Lord. He will be the one that will declare the coming of God himself and the Messiah. You continue reading all the way to the end of Malachi chapter 4 verse 5. Malachi then names this messenger. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet. Meaning to say, the messenger will be Elijah the prophet. And so to the Jews, every year they are still waiting for Elijah the prophet. Because the Messiah can't come if Elijah does not come first. And this is now incorporated into their tradition every year at the Passover. At the cedar meal, they will pour a new cup of wine so that this will symbolically announce the opening of this section called the Haggadah. The Haggadah is a section where they retell the story of the 
deliverance from Egypt. And as they do that, they will declare also the day of future redemption. And this cup that is poured, this cup of wine, is actually prepared for a guest who would come. Meaning to say, anyone who would just drop in, this cup will be for this person to join them in that feast. But as tradition would go, this cup is called the Elijah cup. Because they are hoping that the guests that will come will be Elijah. They will even leave the door open a little bit so that Elijah doesn't have to knock the door or be locked out. He can just step right in and be part of this entire meal. So the cup is called Elijah's cup to express their hope that their guest will be Elijah himself coming to inform them of the Messiah's coming and the rebuilding of the holy temple in Jerusalem. Now, if you're following Jerusalem and the third temple, this is a big thing for them because they are waiting for Elijah to come. Therefore, the Messiah will then follow later. So the theme of future redemption is hidden inside all this, contained inside all these tradition. And at the end, they will declare, next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem. So has Elijah come? Or are they waiting still for Elijah to come? Now Jesus declares this. This is he of whom it is written. He points to John the Baptist. He's saying, friends, you know this verse well. (laughs) You know this prophecy well. Let me tell you who it is about. John the Baptist. And although John is not physically Elijah, although he dresses like Elijah, right? The prophets of the day, they were known to dress in their prophetic dress code. But he's not physically Elijah. But Luke chapter 1 verse 17 says that he will come in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. Now this is not easy for the Jews to understand. So in the Mount of Transfiguration, If you remember, Peter, James, and John saw Moses and Elijah. And then God announces and affirms Jesus as his son, as the one who is to come. But finally, when they come down, they ask Jesus this question. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? In other words, Jesus, if you are the one who is the Messiah, and you are the Christ, and you have already come, how come we have not seen Elijah? Right? Should not Elijah have been moving around and declaring to everyone to say, yo, I'm Elijah, and then you will then be Jesus and no one will question you? And Jesus then answered in Matthew chapter 17, verse 12, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you, that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Now by that time, John had already been beheaded. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. So can you see, Elijah and the Messiah closely linked together. John and Jesus closely linked together. Everything that we learn about John points to Jesus. Everything that is happening to John, we will see that the Messiah will suffer in almost that same way. And so he says, finally, in verse 14, that bracket, right? Verse 10 and verse 14. If you are willing to receive it, you see this? If you are willing to receive it, because some are not willing. He is Elijah who is to come. And that's why it ends with verse 15. He who has ears, let him hear. Because this is not readily apparent for the people who are listening in. They they can't get it. They're still waiting for the person of Elijah. So this first bracket, first outer bracket, positions John the Baptist as Elijah. The second bracket, it closes in a little bit more in verse 11 as well as verse 13, is John the Baptist as the culmination of the Old Testament. Verse 11, Assuredly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Verse 13, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. 
So if I show you a little graphic down here, you will see the special place of John the Baptist. The Jews view the era of prophets as ending with Malachi. Why? Because after that, 400 years of silence, no prophetic voice. And out of the blue in the wilderness, there was a voice in the wilderness. So Jesus extends this era to include John. And another way of saying this is, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. John is only declaring what the prophets and the law had already been prophesying. But he's the final one before the coming king and the kingdom. So John's place is very, very special because he closes the line of Old Testament prophets and opens a new era by handing it over to Jesus. That's how critical he is. So if you discredit John, you discredit Jesus. If you don't receive John, you don't receive Jesus. Does this remind you of the verse that we studied in Matthew chapter 10? Remember the context? He who receives you, receives me. And he who receives a prophet in the name of the prophet. Can you see this? And John is then this prophet that he uses now as an illustration. So let's look at this phrase. There has risen not one greater than John the Baptist. Now it's easy to look at this and think that, wow, John, you're number one. Uh, You win the top prize. No one comes close to you. Again, this phrasing is typical of Jewish culture. It is a use of hyperbole to like stretch it and exaggerate to that kind of uh, understanding. It is not meant to belittle the others. Get this, huh? It's not to say that the others are no good, they're lousy, uh, only John is the greatest. It's not meant to put others down, but to greatly affirm the one who is described. So this is a figure of speech, they would understand this. So all were great. But since Jesus was bringing attention to John, he says, there's none greater. And so John is great because he's got a very, very special place. Let me give you some Old Testament examples. 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 5. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him. There was none like him. In other words, he's the greatest, right? And if we look at this, then we cannot read chapter 23 of 2 Kings because it then describes Josiah as a king who is even greater. The Bible doesn't cancel itself out. It's just using a figure of speech. Chapter 23, verse 25. Now, before Josiah, there was no king like him. But we just talked about Hezekiah. So can you understand? This is just an example for you to know that it is a Jewish phrasing to give credit and to give honor to the one that's being described. On the flip side, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles. Now, does it mean I'm the lousiest, I'm the the worst? No. He's just giving credit to those that have gone before him and the other apostles, they are there. And it's just a posture of humility. And you know that Paul did so much more than all the other apostles. Okay? So this is just to show you this phrasing. In other words, it does not mean that Moses, Samuel, Elijah, Isaiah, all these that have gone before John, that they were inferior to John the Baptist. But that John holds a very special place and a position that the others will never have. You notice John had no great miracles recorded to his name. But he had a great message like no one else. No one else before him would have the honor of being the forerunner to introduce the Messiah. It's a very special place. No one else will have the privilege of closing the Old Testament and opening the New Testament. No one else gets this privilege of paving and preparing the way and handing over everything, passing it on to Jesus who will take it to the finish. So John is great because of his place in God's redemptive plan and redemptive history. So as we consider the outer bracket of John the Baptist as Elijah, and that positions him and prepares the place for Jesus, we move to a closer bracket of John the Baptist closing the Old Testament 
which means a new chapter has opened into the New Testament. A new phase, a new era of the kingdom has come in. And that's why the main point in Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, talks about the kingdom of God. That's the main thing. All the other characters are peripheral to the king and the kingdom. So verse 12 reads, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. This is a very interesting verse. And I've heard people quote it and teach it in quite a few different ways. And every time I hear that teaching or explanation, I'm always wondering, what's the context? How do I fit into about John the Baptist and Elijah and so on and so forth? So let's look at this word called violence. This violence is by whom, upon whom, or upon what, or by what. I think this is important for us to establish first. In the Greek, it is commonly negative and it's passive. It means to suffer violence, meaning whether it's a kingdom or someone, it's to have violence inflicted upon you. It's passive. So that's the first word. That's why it's translated, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. It's being attacked. The other word which translates the violent ones or the forceful ones or violent men, these are the ones obviously causing that act of violence. The third word is that the violent take it by force. To take it by force. These four English words, take it by force, is translated from one Greek word, haparsuzin. Haparsuzin. Now, it may not sound familiar to you, but if I tell you harpazo, maybe some of you say, ah, I recognize that. Because harpazo is used by the Apostle Paul to describe the snatching away, the taking away. And we talk about it in Christian terms today as the rapture. That one day we will be hapazo, you know, we'll be snatched away. So it's like in a moment, it's very forceful. But if you interpret it from a negative sense, then it is to steal, to take away, or to attack, to take for oneself. Well, if you want to be consistent with what we have studied in the Bible so far, these words should not surprise us. Jesus says, once you get out, you be aware of wolves. Be careful with all these people. These are going to be violent ones. (laughs) They are going to not give you an easy time. And they will be violent and there will be some force used. And so Jesus opens a new timeline and he describes the condition. From the days of John the Baptist, now that is not too long, right? From John to Jesus is not very long. And he's saying from that day, The kingdom suffers violence. Meaning since the time that John came onto the scene, there is a new wave of attack unlike any other that comes against the kingdom of God. And violent men would oppose the kingdom of God. So every time the kingdom wants to advance, you can almost understand and expect that there will be an opposition. Now, whether you experience it violently or not, that's a different matter. John is already in prison in that very, very short time and will be executed soon. You continue the story as you read on in our book of Matthew, there will be increasing hostility experienced by Jesus and finally it will lead to his crucifixion. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus warns his disciples of exactly the same treatment and predicament. So since the days of John the Baptist, this violence has already begun. In other words, you can expect it to happen all the way until the return of the king. So that includes each and every one of us as the ages continue and as we wait for the coming of Jesus. Now some would then ask, what about a parallel verse in Luke chapter 16, verse 16? The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. So so this sounds as if like, if you paraphrase it, it's like they are violently forcing themselves into the kingdom. 
So whenever we talk about entering the kingdom, this seems to be a positive thing, right? I mean, don't we want people to come into the kingdom? If you have that kind of a perception or interpretation, this explains why some people will teach you that you must violently possess the kingdom, that you have to forcefully contend for the things of the kingdom. Now, have you heard some teaching like that before? I'm sure all of us will say yes. It sounds nice. My question is, is it correct? Is it the right context? Let's at least agree one thing first. This verse cannot be taken to say that we must contend for the things of the kingdom because the context or the verse is talking about entering the kingdom. Entering and having the promises and the things of the kingdom are two different things. It also does not support being physically or forcefully violent against those who are violent against the people of the kingdom. Can we agree on this, right? This is very straightforward. So we have to ask ourselves this one question to try to find this answer. The question is, can anyone force his or her own way into the kingdom? Can we ever force our way into the kingdom? And I know what your answer is and you're thinking about it. And I think you already can form a certain point of view. You see, the context of Luke 16, 16 is that of the Pharisees' greed for money. The verse that comes before that is, Now the Pharisees were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided Jesus. Perhaps the Pharisees thought that they could buy their way into the kingdom with money. Perhaps they thought that they can push their way in by religion, by position, by status, or by power. If you look at the context, it seems to suggest that. But there was one little problem. Although they declared the kingdom and talked about how to get into the kingdom by these means, they did not live the kingdom life at all. They did not move by the spirit of the king at all. Because after that, immediately the parable that Jesus told was of the rich man and the beggar Lazarus. And you know this parable that when both of them passed on, the rich man as well as the Lazarus, that there was a chasm and there was no way he could get back to warn his brothers how he had missed the kingdom of God and how they should not make the same mistake. And that story or that parable was about whilst you have an opportunity, you did not live the things of the kingdom. Whilst you had a life to live for the kingdom. You were not caring for the poor. You were aware, but totally apathetic. You lived only for yourself. You accumulated all this wealth, thinking that you can buy your way into the kingdom. Now, you want to push it further a little bit. After 16, it comes chapter 17. Jesus continues to teach, and then he declares that the kingdom of God is within you. And then after that, he talks about an end times warning. So the big important point for us is, we can talk about the kingdom and about entering the kingdom, but is the kingdom of God within us, ruling and reigning within us, that causes us to live the way that we should live as kingdom people. That is the proof of the kingdom of God. And so let's ask the question again. Can anyone force himself or herself into the kingdom? You know the answer is no. No one can say, I want to go in and I push myself in. It cannot. We are saved into the kingdom. John chapter 3 says, we are born again into the kingdom. It is by a spiritual birth. There has to be a transformation from within us. There's no way we can bring ourselves into the kingdom. You want to talk about salvation. We were delivered, snatched out from the power of darkness and conveyed into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. You and I did nothing, can do nothing to push ourselves into the kingdom. The new birth, the salvation, the deliverance, everything is Jesus. But what happens after that? After that, we're expected to live righteously by His grace, empowered by the Holy Spirit that we may then finally enter the kingdom of God. See, this is the whole mystery about the kingdom, right? We are born into the kingdom and yet we need to enter the kingdom later on. 
But in the meantime, expect opposition to pull you off, distractions that would throw you all over the place that will cause you misalignment. Now, am I consistent with what Jesus is saying? We're in the book of Matthew. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount again. He says, look, there's a broad way and there's a narrow way. You want to choose the broad way, that's the easy way. But you want to enter the kingdom where there's life at the end of the narrow way, then you pick the narrow gate and you pick the narrow way. And we've already taught about this, that it is a life surrendered to the Lord and it's a life empowered and lived by the Holy Spirit. The Sermon on the Mount closes with building on the rock as well as building on sand. To build on the rock means those who hear and those who do. We don't just talk about things. But those who hear but did not heed the words of Jesus, these were the people who built his house on sand. And when the time came and the rains and the floods came, it fell, great was its fall. And so along the way, as you are, as you are living for the things of the kingdom and the ways of the kingdom, you'll be prepared for trials, tribulation, violent ones who attack the people of the kingdom. But understand this context. We learn from John the Baptist. You don't be like a reed blown about in the wind. You stand strong. You stand ready. You remember you don't wrestle against flesh or blood. That your battle is against principalities and powers. We fight but a different fight. We fight the fight of faith. And we know that the battle belongs to the Lord. So now that you see this main teaching, Jesus positions John the Baptist as Elijah, that he's the culmination of the Old Testament, is to make this one point. To say, if you look at John with his special place, with his special ministry, with his special greatness that is there, he brings things to a close. I bring things to the end after this. Talk about the kingdom. The kingdom is something you have to understand. The main point is, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be a fight. And you have to be positioned to fight well. Not in the way that the world will fight. Because ours is of a different nature. So as we come to a close, I want to talk about kingdom greatness. Because there's one line that I have not studied yet with all of you. Jesus says of John, Assuredly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. And then he slips in this line. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now can you imagine, I want you to receive this in your hearts. Friends, we who are the people of the kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven, do you know Jesus says we are greater than John the Baptist? I only heard one amen. We are greater than John the Baptist. I know it's... It, you've got to take some time to wrap your mind around this. Huh? How can I be greater than John the Baptist? You see, John was considered great, and yet John did not get to see or experience the fullness of the kingdom he declared. Jesus at that point had not died, not yet resurrected, not yet ascended. But do you know that we in the kingdom today, after John, we have this greater revelation and experience. And because of that, those after John are considered greater than John. Don't look at greater as if we are better than him. Do you remember just now I was sharing with you that this phrasing, but it's hard for us to understand. New Testament believers are not greater or better than John in terms of what we have done or how we have lived or that we deserve a greater reward than John. We are considered greater than John because we have a fuller message and we have a deeper revelation of the kingdom. And I pray you have that. We have the kingdom in a fullness that John never quite had. John died in prison without experiencing many things. And it would be like the writer of Hebrews saying this, he would have obtained a good testimony through faith, but he did not receive the promise in his lifetime. And we who are least in the kingdom of God, the word least does not mean the worst or the weakest. It just means everyone is included. Everyone. The least of all. You know, it's just a phrasing. If you want to be consistent with, with the way we interpret. The least of New Testament believers, all, all of us have a greater invitation and even more opportunity than John ever did to participate in the advancement 
of the kingdom. And so, friends, we have a special place as New Testament believers. Just as John had a special place, we too are in a privileged position. John got to declare the coming of the Lord. Friends, we get to declare the coming of the Lord. And what's even more exciting, do you know we live in a generation, really, we of all people in this generation, we may see the coming of the Lord. And you really believe that we are in the last of the last days. I mean, we are in exciting times. We get to move also in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. We, the church today, would have the spirit of the forerunner because the church exists today to declare Jesus Christ. But it's not just to declare. You and I, we all have a responsibility like John did to prepare that way. But how do we do it? We prepare the way by preparing the people of God, by making ready a people who will be there in readiness for the coming of Jesus Christ. And depending how you define readiness, many Christians will say, I believe in Jesus, so I'm ready. In our Keeper's Awakening, we push much deeper. Jesus says, just like the servant who has finished or is faithful to his assignment, he is ready. He never talked about salvation. Salvation is a baby Christian thing, if you want to understand that. Once you are saved and you are being saved, your faithfulness to what the Lord has asked you to do determines your readiness for His coming anytime. And that's why our Keeper's Awakening is so hung up on awakening the saints, getting them aligned, lined up, ready with their assignments so that anytime Jesus, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, anytime we are ready. Huh? We will not be found wanting. We have a great opportunity, greater than John the Baptist, to participate in the advancement of the kingdom through kingdom assignment. And so I say, the least of all the kingdom of heaven, all of us today, were invited to kingdom greatness. We are greater than John because we have a special, special position. But the question is this. Will you accept this glorious privilege and honor? But before you say yes, don't miss the main point and the implications of the main point. Consider the nature of the kingdom of God and its violent repercussions. The kingdom continues to suffer violence. You and I may not experience it in this country that we live in, but we must never take it for granted. The consequences can be costly. But then again, I challenge you, is that not what discipleship is all about? Did Jesus not say discipleship is costly? Many will try to, inverted commas, forcefully get in through different means and making empty promises. There are different gospels that tell you how to get into the kingdom of God today. These are attractive alternatives. Many will tell you that now that you are in, that you are saved already, you don't have to do anything so that you don't have to worry about all the suffering. There will be no suffering. If you are suffering, means you believe wrongly. It sounds really good. It sounds really attractive. I would buy into something like that too. But my point to us all is this. Is this what Jesus taught about the kingdom? You have to read your Bible. And that's why... I say to us, we must revisit kingdom foundations. We are not here to condemn people. We're not here to put a burden on people. We are here to say, let's listen to our king. Let's learn about his kingdom so that we are well positioned and equipped to move on kingdom assignment. And so as we close this evening, once again, Matthew 11 illustrates Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus teaches his disciples about the challenges of being on kingdom assignment. From verses 1 to 6, we see John doubting and questioning, and yet Jesus graciously answers his question. But this evening, from verse 7 to 15, we see that Jesus affirms John, affirms his message and his ministry, and in doing so, Jesus affirms his own messiahship. 
But the main point is about the kingdom of God and how many will oppose it, no matter what you do. Whether you are a nice guy or whether you are uh, radical and sold out for Jesus, people will oppose this. And so I invite you, come back for the next session because Jesus does not leave any stone unturned. When He teaches, He teaches fully. Let's not miss this lesson. We must not miss that we are in a privileged position with a privileged invitation. As much as we honour the greatness of the saints who have gone before us, God invites the least, inverted commas, huh, to share in this greatness. It is not based on who we are, what we have, or how talented we may be. It is all based on who Jesus is and what He has already done for all of us. Kingdom greatness is for all who will say yes to the King. Will you say yes? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you do not leave us clueless, but you give very clear instructions to all of us. But even as we acknowledge that, Lord, and give thanks for that, we ask your forgiveness. Because many times, Lord, we read what we want to read and we interpret what we want to interpret. Lord, will you forgive us, Lord, by your grace. Restore us. Open our eyes once more, Lord. Let those who have ear, let him hear. Let her hear Lord, what the Spirit is saying to the churches. That if the kingdom of God continues to suffer violence, then Lord, will you strengthen us, empower us, embolden us. Give us the strength, Lord, to bear through all that we need to go through for your name and for the glory of your kingdom. And so we thank you, Lord, for one who is great like John the Baptist. But Lord, we thank you also that the least of all of us in the kingdom of heaven, you invite us to kingdom greatness. Thank you for this grace. Thank you for this honor. We love you, Lord. May we always say yes to you, no matter what happens. We bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.